It's Thursday, July 2nd, 2015. This is the Hermetic Hour. And tonight, your host, Folk Runyon, that's myself, will present an essay on the curse of the Moschim, the planetary demons of ancient Babylon. Now, this will be an important commentary on the continuing influence of these ancient negative or demonic aspects of the seven planets upon magical theory and ritual. The origin of the Moschim in the underworld of early Mesopotamian mythology will be explained, along with their revolt against the heavenly powers and its influence on later biblical themes of the war in heaven and the fallen angels. The Moschim influence on Solomonic magic will be examined, and Stephen Skinner's new book, Techniques of Solomonic Magic, will be critiqued in relation to this ancient demonic influence. The concepts of Earth-centered versus cosmic-oriented astrology will be compared and explained. This program may raise more questions than it answers, but it will certainly stimulate thought. So stay tuned in and cheer for the lords of chaos or the forces of light. And uh, well, let's get into it. In 1969, the year the Order of the Temple of Astarte was founded, Mercury Records released a long-playing album called Witchcraft Coven, a Dunwich production by songwriter Jim Donlinger and featuring female vocalist Gina Donlinger. The song, Coven in Charing Cross, described a modern British black magic coven evoking the seven ancient Babylonian Chthonic planetary demons, the Moschim. The band chanted a 4,000-year-old Babylonian incantation in the chorus. Searching cultists held a secret meeting Bringing powers of a darkness upon those who oppose them The chief of the circle, known as Micaiah Drank the blood of a young baby offered unto him They danced ecstatically, they orchid frantically The demon had arisen from the circle on the floor The chanting was much louder and more piercing than The head of the family, a witch hunter named Mead, 
children be God. The fiends, they are seven. Disturbers of heaven, they are seven. They are seven. Seven they are. Necronomicon, well, that should not be surprising. The Moschim were certainly an influence on the modern connection between Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythology and a revival of ancient Babylonian demonology that was developed in the 1960s by the late Kenneth Grant, Peter Lavenda, who wrote uh, Simon, and Jim Donlinger, who wrote and produced uh, the record you just heard, and others. So, who or what were the Moschim, and what is their curse? Now, the Moschim were probably Sumerian in origin, having been created by Anu, the sky god, as messengers and assigned to represent the planets in their journey below the horizon into the underworld, where they attended Arishkigal, the queen of the dead. They were the evil spirits of the seven ancient planets, and they lived and ruled in the underworld. They revolted against the celestial gods and almost conquered the sun and the moon. In the Babylonian version of the myth, Ea, ruler of the gods, sent Marduk, the Babylonian Baal, against them. He drove the Moschim back underground, which may be another version of his triumph over the dragon Tiamat. In any case, the Moschim rebellion could be the origin of our biblical war in heaven, and their fall might be the origin of our Enochian fallen angel mythology. However, in Solomonic magic, our main concern with the Moschim is their persistent negative influence on the character of planetary spirits and their Kabbalistic spheres, tending to place them all in a subterranean venue and thus equate Solomonic ceremonial magic with necromancy. This must 
masking influence or curse has been operating for thousands of years. It is responsible for creating the Klephoth of the Kabbalah, which attributes ferocious characteristics to such planetary deities as the goddess Astarte or Astaroth. And because the underworld is the realm of the dead and the prison of the fallen angels, the evocation of planetary spirits is considered by some writers on magic to be a form of necromancy. Now I suspect that the Moschim are still with us, still struggling to conquer the spheres of our internal trees of life and keeping our souls from ascending to the stars. They are perhaps the mythological avatars of modern chaos magic. Before we describe the Moschim, let us examine Mesopotamian conditions at their creation and compare it with ancient Egyptian concepts of the celestial and terrestrial circuit of the planetary deities and the souls of the departed, which gave rise to the hermetic doctrine of the soul's ascent and descent upon which we base our yoga and our magic. Now, as has often been pointed out, Mesopotamia was a harsh environment. Storms and floods ravaged the land. Mountains and desert tribesmen raided and pillaged the settlements. The people attributed these natural catastrophes and human aggressions to demonic influences. As far back as the Neolithic, people had watched the stars and the planets rise up in the night sky from beneath the horizon. They sleep in the deep. Out of the abyss they rise. Born in the bowels of the hills, evil ones, sowers of ills. The courses of the planets through the signs of the zodiac, especially their retrograde movements, made the original students of the heavens uneasy. What were these wandering stars, they wondered? The fiends, they are seven, disturbers of heaven. And so they were thought of as malefic and especially so because they were seen to rise up from underground or underwater. The Maskine Incantation was first published in English in The Devils and Evil Spirits of Babylonia by R.C. Thompson in 1903, and I strongly suspect that H.P. Lovecraft read it avidly. In his book Outer Gateways, the late, late Kenneth Grant writes, and I quote, 93 is the number of MGM, Magonia, source of the Moschim, who, according to the Necronomicon, <coughs> lie in wait about the boundaries of the world. The Moschim, who are the Klephoth of the planetary power zones, connect with the Lama of Lang, that's Lam, L-A-M, through the number 171 which denotes the invocation of alien deities by the formula of sexual magic. Uh, and in a footnote on the Necronomicon, Grant adds, according to the Necronomicon, and that's the single craft for Sension, the Moschim were the seven lords of, of, of the shadows and the depths of the seas who once reigned over Magan. Now, we should perhaps note that Grant is referring to a version of the Necronomicon not actually written by H.P. Lovecraft, but I still believe that Lovecraft himself was influenced by the Moschine legend in his creation of that work and of his Cthulhu mythos. As Lovecraft fans may recall, 
the old ones were originally from the deeps of the outer space and existed not in the spaces that men know, but between them. They were certainly not human and could not mate with humans in any normal way, although monstrous hybrids were produced by a form of parthenogenesis. Cthulhu lived in the depths of the sea, and there were many mentions of their celestial origins in Lovecraft's fiction. The first of their number, to describe the Moschim, the first of their number is the, is the south wind, the dreaded calm sin from the desert. The second is a dragon with a huge mouth, probably Tiamat. The third is a leopard who steals children, is a serpent, a shibu. The fifth is a fearless wolf. The sixth is a wild is a is an, an onager, a wild ass. Um, and and the seventh is a storm which brings flood and destruction. Now compare these to the demons of the Cliffhop, who are described as black evil giants, loathsome serpents, evil centaurs, bow-headed men, minotaurs, black cat-headed giants, burners, destroyers, deceivers, and demon-headed ravens. Now we wonder how many, how much of ancient Greek mythology had its origins in Mesopotamia. Certainly the ancient Mycenaean Greeks shared a somber and melancholy underworld with the early Semites of Babylon and the Hebrews of Moses' era. Ordinary mortals could not aspire to paradise in the afterlife. There was only the land of shades where the dead wandered lonely and forgotten. Their spirits could be summoned to the surface only with offerings of fresh blood. This was the origin of necromancy and the method of magicians until the Egyptian philosophy of Osiris finally transformed magic into an art that drew its inspiration and power from the heavens rather than from hell. The ancient avatar and god most responsible for this was Osiris. Osiris, like his counterpart Tammuz in ancient Sumer, was a dying vegetation god, resurrected by an earth goddess, Isis, just as Ishtar rescued Tammuz in Mesopotamia. But in, Egypt, in Egyptian mythology, Osiris is resurrected into an underground heaven where he sits in judgment on departed souls, who, if they deserve it, will go on to dwell in the field of rushes or to continue their circuit with the stars. Now, this conception easily evolved into Pythagorean reincarnation in the Greco-Egyptian period. This transcendental system was reflected in the Orphic cosmic theology of the Greeks. Together, the Osirians and the Orphics rehabilitated magical astrology from the stigma of the Moschim. They also reconfigured the Greek underworld into the overworld of the heavens where the departed could ascend up the river of souls, the Milky Way, through the celestial spheres and return to the Godhead near the pole star. Actually, this prefiguring of underworld into overworld, mythical eschatology, had its beginning with the original Phoenician version of Heracles, Hercules, also Melkart of Tyre. Melkart a solar 
short-circuiting aspect of Baal, conquered the twelve beasts of the heavens in a yearly epic that became the twelve labors in the Greek version. If we need a mythical date to mark the fusion of the underworld and the world astro-mythology, we can cite the last labor of Hercules, when the divine hero drags Cerebus, hell's guard dog, up to the surface world. Now, some anthropologists think that the conception of souls rising to the stars came down into ancient Greece from Central Asia in the days of Pythagoras. Now, this is a tempting theory. However, the celestial soul circuit to the circumpolar stars is mentioned in the ancient Egyptian pyramid texts. So, for magical purposes, we must credit the Egyptians, especially the Greco-Egyptians of Alexandria, for lifting the divine planets out of hell. A rescue some modern writers on magic are trying to obscure, resisting that planetary, uh, insisting that planetary powers were and remain subterranean and evil. Now, in any case, we must be aware that in first century Alexandria, the birthplace of hermetic magic, the arts and techniques of ceremonial magic emphasized celestial analogies and symbolism. Certainly, there were Chthonic demonic astrological associations, but very much in balance with the positive celestial aspects. One of the modern writers, whom I believe is under the curse of the Moss scheme, is the venerable Stephen Skinner. In his latest book, Techniques of Solomonic Magic, he tries to establish that the source book of all the Solomonic grimoires, including the Key of Solomon, was the 15th century Hygromancy of Solomon, which he contends has nothing to do with Hygromancy, and that's crying in bowls and bottles, or, or astral celestial astrology. He tries to backdate the manuscript to before the 7th century to link Solomonic magic with the Greek magical papyrus. No manuscripts of the hygromancy date any earlier than the 15th century. My copy is heavily astrological. Skinner correctly dates the Sefer Metef Shalomo to 1700. He shows the illustration of the triangle outside its magic circle, but he, he then fails to mention that the book contains a method for seeing a spirit in a magic mirror, even though he wrote the foreword to the current edition. Now, regarding his book, Techniques of Solomonic Magic, we must ask, where are the techniques? With his omission of scrying and evocation methods, Skinner's title is frankly misleading. Apparently, he wants us to believe that Solomonic techniques were a form of hysterical theurgy, and hence his reluctance to mention scrying in either crystals or mirrors. This exclusion of methods seems to be recurrent in Skinner's work. In 2009, Skinner and David Rankin published a mid-18th century Solomonic grimoire, the Clavis Inferni, attributed to St. Cyprian with a magic mirror on the dust jacket, which is not mentioned in the text. Skinner and Rankin ignored an earlier mid-17th century Solomonic St. Cyprian grimoire, The Art of, of Cyprian, which details the construction and use of a magic mirror um, to evoke planetary angels. Now, 
Perhaps the reason for this omission was that Clavis Inferni is more obviously demonic than the more Christian Art of Cyprian. The same authors also published Summoning Solomonic Archangels and Demon Princes, featuring the work of 16th century Magus Thomas Rudd, and they published that in 2005. Beginning with Rudd's philosophical essay, Iwana Nagica Resurata, in which Rudd makes the psychological component of these spirits quite clear and supports the hermetic theory that they exist in our own personal universes. Now, the authors then suggest that the reader can skip this essay. Elsewhere, Skinner has made it clear that he does not believe that angels and demons have any presence in our minds, and hence his reluctance to support psychoactive magical techniques, even though they were then and now widely used. The use of magic mirrors and Solomonic magic began at least as far back as we can gather from Lynn Thorndike's Magisterial History of Magic and Experimental Science, with Secco Dioscoli, who published his account of summoning a goetic demon fallen from the ranks of the cherubim to serve under King of Maimon in a magic mirror back in the early 1300s. As a result, Secco was burned at the stake. This made other magicians reluctant to write about mirror magic, but Seco's magic mirror, the mirror of Fluoron, lived on. Its later use is well documented in Unlocked Books by Benedict Lang, 2008. And I might also add that the mirror of Solomon appears in the last of the Solomonic grimoires, the Grimorum Verum, the favorite of another victim of the Moschim's curse, British magician Jake Stratton Kent. Kent has written a two-volume opus on ancient Greek Goetic Magic, the Geosophia, the Argo of Magic in 2010. In this work, Kent reminds us that Goetia is the necromantic magic of the ghost, the shaman of ancient pre-Homeric Greece. The ghost uses sacrificial blood to summon the hungry spirits of the dead up from the Greek underworld, ruled by Hades and Akati. Kent believes that this is the nature of spirits, even though even the demons are the grimoires. They are essentially ghosts. Solomonic magic is necromancy. He does not accept a celestial origin or goal for human souls. And as far as he is concerned, three-headed Cerberus is still guarding the entrance to hell. Now, of course, this is not the eschatology of modern hermetic or Rosicrucian magic. Our souls and our power comes down from above, and we call upon higher powers to help us master the demonic elements in our personal and our greater universe. We follow the ancient Egyptian formula and consider the planets, Kabbalistic spheres, and yoga chakras the same above the horizon as below, a philosophically monistic mix of good and evil, driven by the gods under the control of God's angels. This is how our magic and our hermetic version of Solomonic magic has evolved. But to be fair to Stephen Skinner and to Jake Stratton Kent, both of whom I respect and whose writings I find valuable and even inspiring, we must have equal time for, for the other side, which we will call Earth-centered demonic astrology. Stephen Skinner started on this on his path with, a, with his now classic book on geomancy in, in 1964, Geomancy, meaning earth divination, 
is a medieval, perhaps ancient African system of Earth-centered astrological planetary correspondences, each ruled by the demonic aspect or spirit of the planet. Upon reflection, it might seem that geomantic astrology was a creation of the Moschim. However evil as it, as it might be, geomancy is a ferociously accurate system of divination. This uncanny accuracy led Stephen Skinner into a serious study of geomancy's Far Eastern counterpart, the I Ching, another accurate Earth-centered, astrologically-related divination system on which he has written authoritative texts. Given the effectiveness of these systems, we must ask ourselves first, how earth-centered is astrology really? And second, did the lords of chaos actually win their ancient battle to control the planets? Well, the first answer must be it's very earth-centered because tropical astrology follows the seasons of the year, not the constellations of the zodiac. And second, because the actual account of Marduk's victory over the Moschim is missing from the ancient tablets, we must assume that the contest was a draw and that the Lords of Chaos remained in power when the planets were below the horizon. Now, in our modern philosophically monistic neoplatonic hermetic concept of the multiverse, we enjoy a synthesis of celestial and terrestrial astrological systems. As above, so below. The Moschim, or the Lords of Chaos, are part of this mix, and we accept them, but we do not serve them. And, as a Solomonic magician, I must admit that the negative aspects of the planets have as much influence in our practice as do the positive. Even though we profess a positive orientation in our work, I will also admit that the negative aspects do appear frequently in the literature of the art, as Stephen Skinner's books have, have documented. And I suppose that my most sincere complaint about his techniques of Solomonic magic is in the area of the techniques themselves, which I find lacking. I have attributed this omission to Skinner's professed rejection of the subjective nature of spiritual apparitions and his reluctance to support the employment of equipment that would facilitate their manifestation of what he may consider unreal delusions. And even though he himself is aware that the history and literature of the magical art abounds with examples of such equipment and its use, as we have established above, I respect his right to the opinion that angels and demons exist and appear outside of the human mind. But I do not approve of his bending his scholarship to support that position. I will also note that the modern magicians of the chaos magic and Luciferian schools also seem reluctant to use crystals and mirrors in their evocations, preferring to conjure the old-fashioned way, which is imagining beasts in the dark forest beyond the circle of campfire light. And you can't get any more old-fashioned than that. Even though, for a mirror manifestations, it is an equally subjective experience. But before I congratulate myself on escaping, I need to have a page turner like a like a um, like a concert pianist. Before I congratulate myself on escaping the curse of the Maschim and in, in resurrecting old King Solomon's magical religion, venerating the ancient Canaanite pantheon in a hermetic, cosmically supervised universe, 
I must admit that the ancient lords of chaos, dark spirits of the planets, are not that easily ignored. In researching this paper, I discovered and acquired a nearly 600-page-long Luciferian grimoire featuring Solomon and Hiram's pre-biblical gods and goddesses of Canaan in evil, demonic aspect. Canaanite versions of the Babylonian Maschim. And they seem to be laughing at me from the pages of the book, amused at my efforts to suppress them, enjoying my frustration as I realized how well-researched and scholarly this book was, reminding me that I was originally attracted to the planetary gods in their adversarial role in biblical mythology. Baal and Astarte were lustful and uninhibited, a symbol of rebellion against the Christian Puritanism of my upbringing. Astarte was my version of Crowley's Babylon. However, I stopped short of becoming polemic or Luciferian, continuing in the Solomonic magical tradition of calling up the spirits by the power of God. And in our case, the original Canaanite El, rather than the later Judeo-Christian Yahweh. We retained all God's angels and even traced the Gnostic Christian Holy Grail legend back to its roots in ancient Phoenicia. We embraced hermetic astro-philosophy and considered ourselves on the right-hand path. Unlike the Thelemites and Luciferians, we have respect for all religions, especially the Bible-based religions, and of, and, and of course the Masonic fraternity. And this is why we must always recognize and control the influence of the Moschim in our spiritual work. Fascination with the dark side of planetary powers is the danger lurking in Solomon's, Solomon's magic. This is why we believe that God's holy angels should always exercise final control in such operations. And this is why we need to put the Moschim in whatever form they take back into Solomon's brass vessel, which adepts in Solomon's art know is the human mind. Most of us have some fascination for the lures of the dark side. We are attracted to some lesser evils and allow ourselves to indulge in moderation. But so did King Solomon. And we must always remember that in Solomon's magic, the demons or evil spirits are summoned and controlled by the power of God. These spirits must be treated with respect, especially if they were once pagan gods and goddesses who represent the forces and passions of our own personal natures. Solomon's magic has always been this way, and the planetary astrology behind it has always been an equal balance of good and evil, which the Moschim, who also live within us, have been trying to unbalance in their favor for the past 4,000 years. The Moschim represent the forces of chaos. They do not want you to use crystals to call down angels or mirrors to bring up demons. Why not? Well, because crystals are collectors of light and angels are creatures of light. Mirrors are the windows of the soul, and demons are the shadows of the soul. Crystals and mirror scrying have been the techniques of Solomonic magicians since the early days of the Renaissance. The alternatives are natural clairvoyance, which is unavailable to most, or hysterical obsession and psychoactive drugs, both dangerous to health, freedom, and sanity. Now, I am not suggesting that the authors I'm criticizing are recommending these alternatives, but they do not leave their readers better choices of methods and techniques, and that is very unfortunate. Now, please understand 
that I do enjoy Stephen Skinner's series of books on Solomonic Magic, and I have learned much from them. They are a great resource library, and for the most part, well-researched, quite scholarly and erudite. Jake Stratton Kent's work is also a significant contribution and has prompted me to lay in a supply of powdered bull's blood for certain operations. In conclusion, we have uncovered the curse of the ancient Babylonian planetary demons, the Moschim, and traced their effort on the, and their effect on magic down through the ages to the present day. We have shown how they rose up from the underworld and tried to storm the heavens. We have recounted how Marduk uh, forced them back down to hell, but they continued exerting their evil influence on magic and astrology until the Greco-Egyptian hermetic system prevailed, uniting the planets above with the planets below. This was aided by the Phoenician Greek hero Heracles, dragging Cerberus, the guard dog of Hades, up to the surface. We have shown how the curse of the Moschim, or the lords of chaos, have persisted against the powers of cosmos, and how they have tried to subvert the cosmic infernal balance inherent in Solomon's magic. And as good Solomonic magicians, we declare that by the power of the archangel Michael, they shall not succeed. And now... I'll read the bibliography on this on this this, this paper for those of you who are interested in, in in finding the sources. The first is Witchcraft Coven by uh, Jim Donlinger. Uh, that was Mercury Records, 1969. And second, Chaldean Magic, Francois Le Normand, London, 1877. It's one of Simon's major sources. Techniques of Solomonic Magic. Stephen Skinner's Golden Horde, 2015. The Grimoire of St. Cyprian, Clavis Inferni, Stephen Skinner and David Rankin, 2009. Constructing a Magical Mirror According to the Art of Cyprian, Adam McLean, Hermetic Source Works, No Date. The Hydromancy of Solomon, Pablo Torriano from Old Testament Pseudopigraphy, uh, and that's Herdman's 2013. Solomonic Archangels and Demonic Princes, Stephen Skinner and David Rankin, Golden Horde, 2005. Unlocked Books, Benedict Lang, Penn State University, 2008. Sefer Metef Shalomo, Herman Galanz, The Tessian Press, 2008. Outer Gateways, Kenneth Grant, Scoob Books, 1994. The Devils and Evil Spirits of Babylonia, R.C. Thompson, London, 1903. A History of Magic and Experimental Science in Eight Volumes, Lynn Thorndike, Columbia University Press, New York, 1923. And finally, Dragon of the Two Flames, Demonic Magic and the Gods of Canaan, Michael Ford, Succubus Publications, Houston, Texas, 2012, and um, now we have we have enough time left to where I I can read, and I think I should, seeing as how I have it here, the entire excerpt on the Moschim uh, from um, R. C. Thompson's "The Devils and Evil Spirits of Babylonia," and. Uh, so I'll I'll try to give it uh, you know I, I 
I try to give it a, as good a rendition as as, uh, as Jim Donlinger's uh, band chorus did here. Okay. Raging storms, evil gods are they. Ruthless demons, who in heaven's vault were created, are they. Workers of evil are they. They lift up the head to evil. Every day to evil, destruction to work. Of these seven, the first is the south wind. The second is a dragon whose mouth is opened that none can measure. The third is a grim leopard which carries off the young. The fourth is a terrible shibubu. The fifth is a furious wolf who knows not to flee. The sixth is a rampant which marches against God and king. The seventh is a storm, an evil wind which takes vengeance. Seven are they, messengers of King Anu are they. From city to city, darkness work they. A hurricane which mightily hints in heaven are they. Which mightily hunts in heaven are they. Thick clouds that bring darkness in heaven are they. Gusts of wind rising which cast gloom over the bright day are they. With the Imkurulu, the evil wind forcing their way, are they? The overflowing of Adad, mighty destroyers, are they? At the right of Adad, stalking, are they? In the height of heaven, like lightning flashing, are they? To wreck destruction, forward they go. In the broad heaven, the home of Anu, the king, evilly do they rise, and none to oppose them. And when Enlil heard these things, a plan in his heart he pondered. With Ea, exalted Masu of the gods, he took counsel. Sin, Shamash, and Ishtar, whom he had set to an order, the vault of heaven, which Anu he divided, with Anu he divided the lordship of the whole of heaven to these three gods, his offering. Day and night, without ceasing, he ordained to stand. When the seven evil gods stormed the vault of heaven, before the gleaming sun they set themselves angrily. The mighty Shamash, Adad the warrior, they brought to their side. Ishtar, whom Anu the king, moved into the into a shining dwelling, exercising dominion over the heavens. And then ten lines here are, are, are gone, so we don't know what happened in the war. Uh, day and night he was dark. That, that's sin. In the dwelling of his domain, he, he sat not down. The evil gods, the messengers of Anu, the king are they. Raising their evil heads in the night, shaking themselves are they. Evil searching out are they. From the heaven, like a wind over the land, rush they. And Leo saw the darkening of the hero sin in heaven. The Lord spoke to his minister, Nusku, sins the moon god, by the way. Oh, my minister, Nusku, my message unto the ocean bring. The tidings of my son's sin, who in heaven has been sadly darkened. Unto Ea in the ocean announce it. Nusku ex- exalted the word of his Lord. To Ea in the ocean he went quickly. To the prince he exalted Masu, the lord. Nudemund. Nusku, the word of his lord, 
there announced Ea in the ocean heard that word. He bit his lip and filled his mouth with wailing. Ea called his son Marduk and gave him the message. Go, my son Marduk, son of a prince. The gleaming sin has been sadly darkened in heaven. His darkening is seen in the heavens. The seven evil gods, death-dealing, fearless are they. The seven evil gods, like a flood, rush on. The land they fall upon. Do they, against the land, like a storm, they rise? Do they, before the gleaming sun, they set themselves angrily? So mighty Shamash, Hadad the warrior, they brought to their side. Now, description of the seven. Destructive storms and evil winds are they, a storm of evil presaging the baleful storm. A storm of evil, forerunner of the baleful storm. Mighty children, mighty sons are they, messengers of Namtar are they, throne bearers of Arishk and Gal are they. The flood driving through the land are they, seven gods of the wide heavens, seven gods of the broad earth. Seven robber gods are they, seven gods of universal sway, seven evil gods, seven evil demons, seven evil and violent demons, seven in heaven, seven on earth. Neither male nor female are they, destructive whirlwinds are they, having neither wife nor offspring, compassion and mercy they, they do not know, prayer and supplication they do not hear, horses reared in the mountains, hostile to Ea, Throne bearers of the gods are they. Standing on the highway, befouling the street. Evil are they, evil are they. Seven they are, seven they are, twice seven they are. The high enclosures, the broad enclosures, like a flood they pass through. They pass through room to house, they dash along. No door can shut them back. No bolt can turn them back. Through the door, like a snake they glide. Through the hinge, like the wind they storm. Carrying the wife from the embrace of the man, snatching the child from the knees of a man, driving the freeman from his family home, the mistress of another world, while Namtar is the god of pestilence. And this is a charm against the evil spirits. Seven are they, seven are they. In the channel of the deep, seven are they. In the radiance of heaven, seven are they. In the channel of the deep, in a palace, grew they up. Male they are not, female they are not. In the midst of the deep are their paths. Wife they have not, son they have not. Order and kindness know they not. Prayer and supplication hear they not. The cavern in the mountains they enter. Unto Ea are they hostile. The throne bearers of the gods are they. Disturbing the lily in the torments are they set. Baleful are they, baleful are they, seven are they, seven are they, seven twice again are they. May the spirits of heaven remember, may the spirits of earth remember. Now, that is literally all we have on the Moschim from, from ancient Babylon. That's, that's, that's all what we have. Now, uh, so I think we, we've just about covered the Moschim and all the, along with, with, with all the ancient sources. And uh, uh, 
I think we've explained that uh, their influence on on astrology and 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 consequently they're also their influence on magic. Next week we're going to uh, discuss. Uh, it's actually in a way we're kind of it's this kind of a return in a in a new form to to Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, which you remember we covered uh, in a in a previous broadcast and. Uh, uh, Asimov's Foundation series has been very, very influential on modern uh, sociology and, and uh, geopolitical uh, machinations and what have you. And there's a new uh, discipline based upon uh, Harry Seldon's plan, and it's called a new system called Cleodynamics. And this is allied with futurism, which we've also, uh, you know, discussed on this show. And and uh, because of the, the fact that the, these issues are, are uh, things that, that, that should concern uh, uh, modern hermetic magicians, because we are concerned with the, you know, the, with the future of the, of the race and, and various things. And so next week, uh, next week we'll visit Cleodynamics and and uh, the return of the return of Harry Seldon's plan, and so until that time, uh, take care, be well, and uh, good magic. <laughs>